0: it seemed that Arthur Stace wouldn't amount to much. He was born in 1884 into poverty to alcoholic parents in a slum in Sydney, Australia. By the age of 12, he became a ward of the state. With no education, he started to work in a coal mine at 14. By 15, he was an alcoholic and had already served time in jail. And after he became a lookout for a gambling ring and running alcohol for his sister's brothel, and he was involved in break-and-enters. This lifestyle continued until 1916 when he enlisted in the 19th Battalion and went to France. He returned home shell-shocked and half-blind in one eye from mustard gas. And again he sought comfort in the bottle, turning to beer, to whiskey to gin and cheap wine until all he could afford was ethanol. His life went from bad to worse. His crimes repeatedly landed him in jail. His drunkenness repeatedly landed him in the same insane asylum. The poison he was drinking was destroying his mind and his body and his soul. But on August the 6th, 1930, all of that would change. He heard a sermon by R.B.S. Hammond and gave his life to Christ. His soul was saved and his bondage to alcohol was broken. Two years later, he heard a sermon by John Ridley based on Isaiah 57.15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Ridley shouted, I wish that I could, sh- could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. And states left with the words eternity, indelibly written in his mind and his heart. He had a piece of chalk in his pocket, and he bent down and on the sidewalk, wrote the word eternity in a perfect copperplate script. The strange thing he had explained later was that he had no schooling and couldn't have spelled eternity for a hundred quid. For the next thirty-five years, Stace traveled through the streets of Sydney and its suburbs writing the word eternity on walls and sidewalks in chalk. Mr. Eternity, as he became known, became a part of the Australian heritage with his message of eternity. and. Forty years after his death, on New Year's Eve, 1999, with a million people watching the the Sydney fireworks from the harbor front and more than a billion watching worldwide there in in fireworks written across the Sydney Harbor Bridge, the word eternity. And then several months later, during the Sydney 2000 Olympics, the word eternity was again emblazoned on the Harbor Bridge, this time with $3.6 people watching on television. The word eternity, written in chalk that would only last until the next rainfall, became an icon in Sydney and is now engraved in the minds of billions. Eternity is a simple word expressing a profound concept. A word that draws the mind to think that there is more than this life. A word that points to the fact that that, we should be searching for the unfathomable. That there is an eternity and that we have an eternal soul. And far more than that, pointing to the eternal God. Eternity. No beginning, no end. Eternity is, eternity always has been, and eternity always will be. Eternity, eternity, How long art thou eternity? A little bird with fretting beak might wear to naught the loftiest peak. Though but each thousand years it came, yet thou wert then as now the same. Ponder, O man, eternity. Thomas Boston once said that no one can comprehend eternity but the eternal God. Eternity is an ocean whereof we shall never see the shore. It is a deep where we shall find no bottom. A labyrinth from which we cannot extricate ourselves and where we shall never find the door. The word infinity is similar. Infinity is a concept that our finite minds cannot comprehend. Pondering the limitless reaches of space is one way, as we talk with the children, that you can think uh, about infinity. The, 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 the reaches of space are infinite. It goes on forever and ever. The moon is a quarter million miles away. The sun is 93 million miles away. Our solar system is spinning through space traveling at 134 miles per second. Our solar system is part of a galaxy that is called the Milky Way that scientists believe contains as many as 200 billion stars. Every star we see in the night sky is part of the Milky Way. Our Milky Way is just one of 125 billion galaxies that make up the visible universe. Andromeda is the next closest galaxy and it is 10 million, million, million miles away. Andromeda and the Milky Way are part of what is known as the local group. But beyond the local group are even larger clusters of galaxies. Man has no idea what is beyond those galaxies. <clears throat> the infinite universe gives us just a glimpse of the infinite God. None can comprehend infinity, but the infinite God. None can comprehend eternity but the eternal God. So this morning I am tasked to preach on something that we can't understand. We can't comprehend these things. Last week, as we embarked on the study of the attributes of God, I talked about how we're going to be working through the Westminster Catechism's answer to the question what is God? God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at God's infinity and eternality. E.W. Tozer said, The mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And that the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. He also said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We're trying here to comprehend something that is so vastly beyond us, as our eternal God is infinitely above His creation. We're dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as believers to be able to grow in our understanding of who God is and to enable us to be able to worship Him for who He is. So trying to understand the infinite and eternal God is is really the the most worthwhile endeavor that we can undertake to consider the glories of God. There's nothing more important about you than what you think of God. So the study of who God is helps us to to grow in our knowledge of Him and so we're, we're pressing towards something that we will never Fully attain. Even in eternity, we'll never fully attain an understanding of the glory of God, and specifically here, the infinity and eternality of God. But as we consider who God is, it, it, it sanctifies us, it, it humbles us, it, it helps us to understand who God is a little bit better, it helps us to understand who we are a little bit better. But for those who are apart from Christ, those those who are are really helpless, the the study of who God is scares them. Like like As I was talking to the children when I was lying in bed and trying to understand the infinity of numbers, the infinity of the universe, the unbeliever is, is like a child recoiling from the truths of who God is. But for those who love God, the study of these unfathomable attributes draws us to Him, causes us to want to to, to press into Him, to know Him more. So our feeble minds try to to comprehend God, but but though He is infinitely further above us, then, then Mount Everest is above a tick between the scales of a snake that is slithering in the dust or that the depth of God is infinitely deeper than than the Mariana Trench, is deeper than a a coconut that is floating on the surface of the water. God's glories are unfathomable. But still we strive to know Him personally. Still we strive to know Him better. Why? Because that's what we are date for. Like the Westminster Catechism says, the chief... End of man, and the Baptist Catechism as well says the chief end of man is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. You cannot glorify someone you don't know. You cannot worship someone you do not know. You cannot enjoy someone that you do not know personally. The God that so many people worship is just a figment of their own imagination. They want a God that fits in their box. A God that they feel comfortable with. A God according to their own understanding. They want a God just like them. But this is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of the Bible. These people have no idea who the God of the Bible is because they have never met Him. As you read John 4.24, God's a spirit, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. We get hints, yes, and in, in, in common grace, there, is, there, is, there are hints of, of what God is like through his creation in general revelation. But in order to really understand, in order to really even begin to understand who God is and what he is like, you must look to his word, and the power of his Holy Spirit. As we'll see this morning, we must look to Christ, the radiance of the glory of God. Paul Washer explains that there is only one God, and He alone is great. He says all other beings and things are totally dependent on His goodness and strength. He says if such is the case for even the most esteemed among men and angels, how could we ever attribute greatness to any being or thing other than God? He says, as the self-existent infinite creator, he is infinitely above his dependent and finite creation. The mightiest archangel is no closer to being like God than the tiniest microbe. God is incomparable. And the content of the body of believers, he says, this truth is extremely important. He says that there are no great men or women of God in the scriptures or in church history, only weak Sinful, faithless men and women of a great and merciful God. Amen. Well, but this is the God that we know and serve. This is the the God who we strive to know and serve in a deeper and more powerful way. God is without limitation. He is absolutely perfect in His being. He is infinite in His presence. In his perpetuity and His perfections. And this morning we're going to to ponder the presence, perpetuity, and perfections of God presented perfectly in the person of His Son. So first let's look at at how God is infinite in His presence. God is infinite in His presence. When people think about the infinity of God, this is is what what first comes to mind in in many people's hearts and and lives. They think of His omnipresence, that, that God is simultaneously everywhere. As Robert Raymond explains in his Systematic Theology, God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation. Well, that everything and everybody are immediately in his presence. He says we need to be careful here that we do not consider God's omnipresence with pantheism, that God is the universe, or with panentheism, that God is is in everything in the universe. He is, as we'll see also in in all of his attributes, he is completely beyond the universe. This is so impossible for us fully to grasp because we are finite creatures limited by time and space. But let these scriptures guide your thinking. Psalm 139, 7 to 10, it was read for us earlier. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And we're we're seeing also there his his omniscience, that God is all seeing. In Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see Him? 2 Chronicles 6, 18. But will, will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and earth cannot continue, how much less this house that I have built. This is David writing this. So how can we know this God? How can we know this God that even the heavens cannot contain? We can know Him in His Son. We can know Him through the Gospel as the sinless Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt amongst His sinful creation. God is transcendent. He is infinitely above and infinitely beyond us. Yet He came near to us. The His Son. The Son, as the eternal God, possesses all of the attributes of the Deity. He is as infinite in His presence as the Father is, yet in the incarnation He took on human flesh. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, that, that God is both fully, or that God the Son is both fully God and fully man. Yet This is a mystery. We cannot Comprehend how how he could be these two things at once, and and fully and completely both both things at once. But this is the God that our scriptures describe for us. Jesus the Son is fully God and fully man. So in Christ we 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 have a, a we have a, a, a beginning of an understanding of, of what God is like. And we can see a little, a little bit of this in the, in the omnipresence of Christ when we think about in the, uh, after the resurrection where, where Jesus could appear and disappear at, at, at different places. Or in, in Matthew 28.20 where he says to the disciples, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, that the Son is omnipresent. So God is infinite in His presence, but God is also infinite in His perpetuity. In other words, He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He is outside of time. God is. and You can see this in His most holy name that He revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14, where He said to Moses, I am who I am. And Jesus repeated this and applying these things to himself quite, quite often in the Gospels, especially you see it in John's Gospel. But God went on to, to say to Moses in Exodus, in Exodus 3, He says, Say to this people Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered through all generations, Yahweh, the most high name of God, means I am. God is. Before the universe existed, God says, "I am," and for all eternity, God says, "I am." But again, these things are, are incomprehensible to us. We can't. We can't understand that. that As finite creatures in time, we cannot understand how God can be outside of His time. and exists for all time. But we seek to understand these things because we are wired to seek to understand these things. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out What God has done from beginning to end. And so that's speaking there generally. That that again, under common grace, eternity is in the heart of man. But for those of us who are in Christ, eternity has been written indelibly in the ink of Christ's blood on our hearts. So once again, in order to, to seek to understand these things, we must look to Jesus Christ, to God the Son. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we see the glory of God, even His eternality and His infinity, we see these things in the face of Christ. In John 1.1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God was already there. He has no beginning. He was there already at the beginning, making the beginning. And that very intentionally is is meant to to link John 1.1 with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And you could see there, from, uh, from in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can see that there's more than one person there. <coughs> right? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Father and the Son are eternal. You know that, that the Word refers to the Son, because in John 1.14 it says, that, and the, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. So the Father and the Son are eternal, and the Spirit is eternal as well. The Nicene Creed teaches that the Son is eternally generated by the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and, 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 and some forms from the Son as well. Repeatedly in Isaiah, God is referred to as the first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Again, you can see this is more than one person. Right? This is is the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. More than one person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all one eternal God. Now again, if we have a hard time wrapping our finite brains around the the infinity and eternality of God, the the truth of the the triunity of God is even more incomprehensible. You know what, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the fact that, that, that I can't explain the Trinity. I'm okay with the fact that that the God who is infinitely above and beyond me is is that there are are large parts of who He is that are mysterious to me. Because it causes me to to press into Him, to to rely on Him and and, and heartfelt dependence on Him to know who He is. And and to to begin to seek to understand things that, that I know that will take all of eternity and that I still will never fully understand him as he truly is. I'm okay with it. The eternality of the sun is, is picked up repeatedly also in Revelation, where the sun is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, referring to the first and last letters of, of, of the Greek alphabet. Revelation twenty two thirteen 13, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so here we we have words that that were referred, ascribed to to God in the Old Testament, in in Isaiah, are referred to here in in this passage in Revelation, and several times in Revelation, directly to the Son. And and so if you have uh, Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door, you can bring these up with them. You can ask them, who is the beginning and the end? Who is the beginning and the end? And, and they would say, Well, the Lord is the beginning and the end. You say, That's right. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the eternal Son of God. So God is infinite in His presence, God is infinite in His perpetuity, but ultimately, God is infinite and eternal in His perfections. God is infinite and eternal in His perfections. That's what the Catechism means when it refers to God's infinity and eternality. That He is infinite in His being, His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, and His his faithfulness. And Likewise, we'll see next week that He's immutable. He doesn't change any, any of these either. God's infinite splendor and majesty is not something that that changes or grows. It is intrinsic to His character. It is a part of who He is always. Again, from Robert Raymond, God's glory is simply the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic Godness of God. Inherent in the attributes essential to him as the deity. In other words, the glory of God expresses the sum total of his attributes. And all of God's attributes are eternal. And all of God's attributes are infinite. So we'll examine these more in more detail as we examine each of God's attributes in turn, but I want to, to give you just a glimpse of the infinity and eternality of God's perfections this morning. God is not just wise. God is infinitely and eternally wise. He is omniscient. He sees and knows all things. In fact, He declares the end from the beginning, There's always bringing out the best possible outcome by the best possible means, all for his glory and for the good of his children. In Psalm 139, David was comforted by the thought that God knew him intimately and exhaustively. He declared again, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search up my path, and my lying down, and you were acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. This comforts the believer. But what would the unbeliever think about these things? What should the unbeliever think about these things? That God knows. That sin... That they are entertaining their lives with. You. Every moment of every day, God is watching. God knows intimately that God's wisdom will endure for all eternity. God is not just holy, He's infinitely and eternally. Holy. as Paul Washer explains God's holiness means that he is absolutely and utterly separate and transcendent above his creation and separate and transcendent above his creation's corruption God's holiness is his preeminent attribute God's holiness is the greatest truth we can learn about him there is there is no other attribute declared in Psalm, Greater attribute declared, it's in Psalm 50:21 where God indicts sinful men who thought God was like Him. He says there is, there is no greater praise given to God than it was given by the seraphim in, in Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And God's holiness will endure for all eternity. God is not just good. He's infinitely and eternally good. He pours out His vast love on His creation. He even blesses those who rebel against Him. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5, 45. God not only blesses those who rebel against them with material blessings, but God only, rather, blesses those who rebel against Him with material blessings, but for those who He calls to repentance for His children, He blesses the elect by sending them His Son. This is infinite goodness, and God's infinite goodness will endure for all eternity. God is not just loving, He's infinitely and eternally loving. John 3.16 is is perhaps the the, the best-known verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Probably the the, the most well-known verse in the whole Bible. But I wonder sometimes if this verse has become so familiar that, that people really sought to understand what it means. Kind of like in a a cold marriage when, when yes, the husband knows what his wife looks like, but he's never looked, he has not looked at her, really looked at her in many years. Perhaps for some, that's what this verse is like. But just think for a moment about the love of the giver. God's great love. And just think about the, the, the worth of the gift. This gift is God the Son. And He didn't just give His Son to, to, to be a king on a, on a throne and to, to rule temporally. He, he gave His Son to The greatness of the giver. The greatness of the gift. And the unworthiness of the recipients of that gift. The world. Us. Sinful rebels. That we were. God gave his son for us. This is God's love. And it will endure for all eternity. God is not just faithful, He is infinitely and eternally faithful. Psalm 103 verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. And Psalm 111 verses 7 to 9, The works of His hands are faithful and judge. And just, rather, all of his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He said, Redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And all of these attributes, all of these attributes are seen perfectly in the person of the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Is the exact imprint of his nature. In the incarnation in Christ, we see God's infinitely perfect character on display. And you see these infinite perfections in the Son most powerfully in the Gospel. You see them most gloriously at the cross see, the wisdom, God's plan in eternity past, the, the, the cross was not plan B. This was God's plan his, from the, from before, before time began to send His Son. We, we, see his, his, we see His holiness most perfectly displayed as we, we see God's wrath on sinners. We see it as the Son was forsaken by the Father because the the Holy God detests sin. The Father turned His back on His own Son on the cross. We see the goodness of God in providing a way that, that a sinful people come into the presence of this holy God we see the love of God as he punished his son for his bride for the church we see the faithfulness of God as he was faithful to, to send his son to die but also again to raise him up from the grave because it was impossible for death to hold him And so we see all of God's attributes, most gloriously, at the cross. But, beloved, through the cross, in Christ, God is working out those perfections in you. Matthew 5.48 says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there is a sense in in which this is a command. It's a command to be perfect because God is perfect. But the verb that is here is not an imperative, this is an indicative, it is a statement of fact. He is saying you must be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. He is saying you will be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. The perfect God is doing a perfect work in you to draw you, to sanctify you into the perfections of his Son. You have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what that means. That the God is is growing you, is making you every day, making you more like Jesus. He's making you more perfect every single day. Now you can't always see it. Quite often we're, we're more blind to to, to, uh, to these things, where we're aware of our weaknesses. But if you step back from your life and you consider over a, a longer period of time, you can see the direction of your life. You can see that if you are truly saved, you are growing in Christ's likeness. But if that's not there, And that, that's one of the things you're, thankfully, you're not left to your, on your own to figure out. That's one of the things that the, the church is to help you grow in. The church is to help you to recognize is, is if that saving work, if that, if that, that growth in Christ's likeness is there. Because if you are truly saved, it will be there. So the perfect God is doing a perfect work in you to make you perfect. And so you respond with joy and thanksgiving. You respond with worship. For all that God has done. For all that God is doing. For all that He will do. And so studying these things, studying the the infinity and the eternality of God is a means of grace in your life because as you begin to perceive these things, your eyes are opened. And you grow in your worship. Your perspective changes. Even the most difficult of trials becomes an opportunity for you to see that God is at work in you, even through those very trials, to make you perfect and complete. Like James 1, 2-4 says, and you can see this all through the scriptures, but James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, hear this, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when you begin to understand and grow in your understanding of, of who God is, that then you're, you're transported out of the, the, the day-to-day problems and trials of life, and everything takes on a new meaning. When you interpret it, interpret your life in, in terms of who God is, Beloved, one day, one day you will see Him face to face, and you will be transformed on that day. But be transformed as you seek His face today. Arthur Stace, illiterate, alcoholic, criminal, was radically changed when he encountered the eternal, infinite God. He began to understand something that, that, that even the world's sharpest minds couldn't even begin to comprehend. And as he desired to point others to knowing his God, only eternity, eternity revealed how many lives were changed because they saw that simple word, eternity. Arthur States left a mark on a city, on a culture. Other states left a mark on eternity because the eternal and infinite God had made an, had made a mark on his heart. Have you encountered this infinite eternal God? What mark will you be? Let's pray together.